0: But good morning. Good morning to all of you. My name's Ian. If I've not met you before, as Sophie said, we lead this site of Cardiff North for Vineyard Church. Um, And I'm excited for this morning. I'm really excited for what the Lord wants to do. It's been preparing this talk has been a struggle this week. I'll be honest with you. It's been a challenging one, but I'm excited for what the Lord wants to say this morning, hopefully through me. And if this is your first um, Sunday with us, or if you've missed some of the last few weeks, we've been in a preaching series looking at the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And the theme of this series has been restoring the city, which is our vision as a church to restore this city and renew the nation. So the theme of this series has been Restoring the City. And if you've missed any of the talks along the way, you can catch up with them online through our website. And as we've journeyed through the story of Nehemiah and read about his attempts to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, we've been considering what lessons we can learn and apply into our context today as we seek as a community to restore this wonderful city of Cardiff and beyond. And to the plans that and purposes that God has for it. You know, God has a plan for this city, and we want to be part of bringing those plans to fruition, of seeing the kingdom come in this place. And this morning is the final talk in this series, and I've got a big challenge ahead of me. Yeah, some of you might have clocked over the last few weeks. In the first six weeks of this series, we've covered the first five chapters of Nehemiah. And so if you've read a a bit further along, or if you know the book of Nehemiah, you'll know that there are 13 chapters in this book. So we've done five chapters in six weeks, and this morning I'm going to attempt to do the remaining eight. (laughs) Um, I don't know whose bright idea that was. Thanks for that. I'll give it my best. I was actually thinking, I don't need that, I was actually thinking one option is that I could just read from chapter six right through to chapter 13 verse by verse. It would have saved me a lot of prep, but I didn't think you guys would be that keen on me doing that, Um, unless I did a dramatic reading of it. That would have been fun maybe next week. So as I bring this series to a close, there are three things that I want to do today. I'm going to start by zooming out for a moment and taking a step back from Nehemiah in order that we can look at how this story fits with the larger narrative of the Bible. And then we're going to zoom back into the story of Nehemiah and jump through the remaining eight chapters fairly quickly to see how this story plays out. And finally, I want to finish this talk and conclude this series by inviting us to consider what the story of Nehemiah is ultimately pointing us to and explaining what I think is the most important lesson it teaches us about restoring the city. Are you with me? Good, that's good. I just, I'd love to pray before I go any further. I'd love to pray for this. Yeah, yeah Lord God, we are your church. We are your people. And I pray that this morning um, that you would be speaking to us, that you would be softening our hearts and opening our ears to hear from you. And I pray that um, the story of Nehemiah and our understanding of it in the bigger picture would help us as we try and restore this city to what you have for it. So, Lord, would you come? Would you be glorified through this talk? And would you speak clearly to us, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, let's start by taking a step back from Nehemiah for a moment to see how this story fits into the bigger story. In the first talk of this series, I gave you some context leading up to the story of Nehemiah and explained how the Israelites had found themselves exiled from Jerusalem until King Cyrus of Persia granted them permission to return. But since then, we've spent the majority of this series looking at the story of Nehemiah chapter by chapter and considering the key lessons that can be learned from each each one as we've gone. And please don't hear me wrong, this has been great. I've found it fascinating um, to study this book so closely, chapter by chapter, to see what we can learn from it. But Nehemiah isn't an isolated story. And it's part of a much bigger story that we need to understand of God's relationship with his people. And we see this throughout scripture. And the danger is that sometimes when we take a book and we zoom right into it, that whilst we learn some really helpful things, that we may miss the role that it plays in the bigger story. It's kind of like if you go and see a movie that's part of a trilogy or a bigger or a bigger series, but you've not seen any of the other films. Now... Here's a bit of a confession for you. I love Star Wars. Oh, yeah, there's some fans in the room. Love it. I'm not the only nerd in the room. Um, I love Star Wars. And... (laughs) Yoda in the in the corner. So every time a new Star Wars film comes out, I wanna go see it, even the new ones. Even if I know that it's gonna be way too much digital effects, I still wanna make it along. And a few years ago, they released a film called Rogue One. I don't know if any of you have seen that film, Rogue One. I like that film, it was good. And it was made as a standalone film, the idea that you could go and watch it and you wouldn't necessarily have had to seen the whole thing. But where they placed it in the series was that it sat between t- two trilogies. The, the best trilogy, the original one, and the prequel trilogies. And Rogue One sat right in the middle. Now, you could go and watch it with no understanding of either, either trilogy. But essentially, you had six films worth of story and background and uh, mythology that you could go into this new film understanding. And so I was really up for going to see it. And Soph, in her in her graciousness for me, came along with me, and she didn't. Ha- she you, at the time you probably hadn't watched that much of Star Wars. Still fall asleep most of the time whenever we watch it, but when we went to see it, she came. and And to be honest, it was a decent film, and I think you enjoyed it for the most part. But there was there were fi- there were scenes in the film that I was like, "This is amazing," and Soph was like, "I don't get it. I don't understand what the big deal is about." You see, for me, because I knew the whole story, I knew that if a certain character entered a scene or if a certain plot line was playing out, I knew what that meant. But for Sof, she was just seeing this one story and being like, what is this? <laughs> what is going on? And my point is that my experience, experience of the film was completely different to Sof's because I knew the bigger story. I could see how the film fit in the bigger narrative. You see, experiencing the story in isolation can teach us one thing, but experiencing it as part of a bigger story can have a far greater impact on us. So it makes sense that we'll find it easier to understand the true meaning of Nehemiah when we understand how it fits with the bigger story. And there's something significant about this story that I don't think we've really talked about much in this series that I believe will open up our understanding of the most important lesson from Nehemiah. So we're going to look at this this morning. You see... As we read through the story of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, or the story of the the Old Testament itself, we find it's this back and forth, up and down struggle between a God who wants intimate relationship with his people and shows the mercy time and time again, and his people, who are sometimes really up for that relationship, and at other times they turn their back on it. Ultimately, we see that there are people who just can't commit to being in a relationship with God. And in the years of exile leading up to Nehemiah, while the Israelites weren't living in Jerusalem and they were distant from God, the prophets began to prophesy about a time of restoration that was to come. And these prophecies stirred up uh, a deep hope and a deep expectation that one day, God would transform the hearts of the people and they would be able to live in a faithful relationship with him. That was the hope. That was what the prophets were speaking of, this this new time that was coming. And in particular, the prophets of Jeremiah and Ezekiel spoke of the coming of this new age. And I'm just going to delve into a couple of the verses from those prophecies. Jeremiah 29 to 33 speaks of this restoration. And in Jeremiah 31, in verses 31 to 33, it says this, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant and I turned away from them. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So that's a prophecy in Jeremiah. And we see a similar hope echoed in Ezekiel 36 in verses 24 to 28. This is God speaking through his prophet again. I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle you clean on, clean with water. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols, and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people, and I will be your God." And these prophecies speak about the people being reconciled, reconciled to God and made right with him. And this word reconciliation is really key to my message today. So what do we mean by reconciliation? It's one of the longer words that I use <laughs> or have learned in my life. Reconciliation is about bringing things back together. In this context, it's about a relationship being restored, a reunion between God and his people. One of my favorite examples of reconciliation from the Bible is the story of the prodigal son. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's the story of a son who turns his back on his father, goes his own way and squanders everything. Then realizing the error, error of his ways, he comes back to his father who wholeheartedly welcomes him back into the family. It's an amazing story. And that's a picture of reconciliation to God. It's about prodigals, people who are far from him, coming home. That's what reconciliation is about. And I think this helps us to understand what's actually going on in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a story about so much more than just rebuilding the walls. We've spent a lot of time looking at how to survey a wall and how to rebuild a wall and all that goes into it. But this story is so much more than just rebuilding a wall. The restoration of the city is taking place in the hope that returning to Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple and the city walls, and reminding the people of God's law will bring about the fulfillment of these prophecies and begin the coming of this new age of blessing in the kingdom of God. The whole point of the story is to bring about this new age. And ultimately, that it would would result in the people being reconciled to God and made right with him. This is what Nehemiah is all about. And in 2 Chronicles uh, 36.22, it confirms this and says that Cyrus, the king of Persia, gave permission for the Israelites to return to Jerusalem to build the temple and the city in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. The Bible tells us itself, that is why he's doing it. That's why they returned, to fulfill the prophecy. And so this is a really important thing for us to keep at the forefront of our minds as we read through the rest of Nehemiah this morning. I want you to hold on to this thought, that for Nehemiah, restoring the city is ultimately about reconciliation to God. True restoration of the city is about people being brought back into relationship with their father in heaven. That's what true restoration is about. So with that in mind, let's step back into the story of Nehemiah and find out what happens. And if you've got a Bible with you, I'd love to encourage you to take out your Bible. But just to say, (laughs) as you might have guessed, we're going to move through this pretty rapidly. Um, And we'll probably just, and we'll just stop at a few key moments along the way. But as we steamroller through it, I just think it's really helpful sometimes that as we're going through, you're just turning the pages and we might not be reading them in full, But just to be able to place yourselves where we're at, what's going on. And my encouragement to you is maybe later this week when you have a moment or get the time to reread through them and see what's going on in the fullness of that story. Um, But we're going to move through it quite quickly this morning so that we don't miss the tennis. (laughs) (laughs) So far in this series, in the first five chapters... We've seen how Nehemiah has his heart broken by God when he hears about the state of Jerusalem and how he asks the king of Persia to let him go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls. We've looked at how Nehemiah goes back and he surveys the damage um, and rallies the people to work together in rebuilding the wall, but also how he faced opposition along the way. And now as we pick the story up at the end of chapter 6, in verse 15, we discover that the wall has been rebuilt. I kind of expected it to happen at the very end of the book, but it happens here right in the middle. The wall is rebuilt, the work's been completed, and Nehemiah's initial objective has been accomplished. And if we skip forward to chapter 7, we get this long list as Nehemiah makes a record of all the people who had returned to Jerusalem. Then in chapters 8 to 12, we reach the high point of the story. In chapters 8 and 9, Nehemiah and Ezra rally together, all of the Israelites, to hear the scriptures being read aloud. And it's a seven-day Bible marathon. Don't know how that sounds to you. And the people are so moved that they commit themselves to following the terms of the Torah all over again. They agree that the temple won't be abused by power politics anymore. And that the people, and the people declare that they will devote themselves to observing the commands of the Torah. This is a huge, huge moment. The physical restoration of the city walls is leading to a spiritual awakening in the people. And this is great news for Nehemiah. Because for him, rebuilding the city walls wasn't the end goal. The end goal was always to reconcile the people of Israel back to their God. And Nehemiah believed that it was through rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city walls and by reintroducing the Torah, the God's law, that this would be achieved. That's what, that was his belief. And we see this beginning to happen through, the chapters of eight, uh, through chapters 8 to 12. So I just want to take a moment to look at these chapters in a, lit- a little bit closer. In chapter 8, all of the Israelites gather in the city square and Ezra reads the Torah to them. But as Ezra reads God's law over them, the people begin to weep and mourn. This is a moment that Nehemiah must have thought would be a really joyous occasion to be celebrated. And here are the people and they're just weeping. It doesn't say why, but I think it's safe to assume that they began to realize the weight of their mistakes. As, the, as God's word was being read out over them, they realized how far they had turned from him and how things should have been compared to how they actually have been. But then Nehemiah says to them in, in chapter 8, verse 10, Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is probably the most well-known and most often quoted verse from Nehemiah. But so often, I believe it is understood and shared completely out of context. Here, Nehemiah is saying to the people, Do not mourn, because despite of your failure and your sin, it is the Lord's joy to bring restoration to repentant hearts. It is the Lord's joy to bring restoration to repentant hearts. This is the joy of restoration. And God delights in it. We have a God who loves to restore things that are broken, to reclaim that which is lost. And we do too, right? Don't you find that you get a great sense of satisfaction when you do something to bring restoration? Whether it's um, fixing something that's broken or cleaning something that's got really dirty or making something right that was wrong. There's this deep sense of satisfaction and joy that comes when we feel able to restore something to how it's meant to be. Um, I remember a, a number of years ago when I used to work in a pub. And one of my jobs on just about every shift that I had was to shine up the brass coverings that covered the beer taps um, of the draft ales. They look they look great. They're old-fashioned beer taps. And um, all day they'd get covered in drops of beer and fingerprints and smudges. And they'd go from this beautifully mirrored brass finish uh, that you could see your own reflection in. It was stunning. I mean, the brass was good. I was, you know, (laughs) I'm not making a comment. They went from this wonderful, like, reflective surface to being this grubby, stained, dirt-covered surface. And so I'd have to get these two cloths um, and this bottle of Brasso polish, and I'd rub the polish on with one cloth and, and cloud it all up and leave it for a while, and then I'd have to get the other cloth a bit later and just shine it up. And just, and just rub all of the polish off. Um, and when I was finished, the brass, br- if I'd done my job well, the brass coverings would look brand new. They just look stunning. And even though I felt, often I felt like it was a bit of a boring task spending my time doing that, it was always so satisfying at the end when the brass was clean and spotless. My point is that there is great joy to be found in restoring things. And for me, this is a sign that we are made in the image of our Creator, that we take such satisfaction in seeing things restored. In the same way that I took satisfaction from cleaning up that brass at the pub and making it spotlessly clean to the point where I could see my own reflection in it, God delights in cleaning, up, cleaning us up from removing our mess and making us spotless too so that his reflection can be seen in us. He delights in it. So Nehemiah explains to the people that God's joy in bringing his people back to him is good news for them. That they don't need to weep. They don't need to focus on all that's gone wrong before. And verse 12 says that when the people understood this, they went away to eat and drink and celebrate with joy. The people's mourning turns um, to celebration. And following this, we see in chapters 9 and 10 that the Israelites begin to repent and confess their sins. The people declare that they will devote themselves uh, to observing the commands of the Torah and being obedient to God. And if you're Nehemiah, this is the moment. This was revival. Rebuilding the city walls was one thing. But this is what the prophets had actually spoken about. This is what they'd been hoping for. This is what Nehemiah longed to see. And as we're reading this story of Nehemiah, at this point, we should feel this same sense of momentous excitement. This is the moment that they'd spoken about. All of the hope and expectation that one day Israel would come home to God. The words of Jeremiah and Ezekiel come to mind I will be their God, and they will be my people. And as we're reading it, it seems like this moment of restoration and reconciliation has come. And by chapters 11 and 12, the people have settled in the city, and they're dedicating the walls of Jerusalem with this great fanfare. There are choirs, and there's a marching band, the whole shebang. It's like this massive festival going on in the city, this moment of celebration and thanksgiving. But then we get to chapter 13. And it's this huge anti-climax. I don't know if you've read read beyond yourself. We get there, and it's not the ending we expected. From verse 6, we learn that Nehemiah has returned to the king of Persia for an unspecified length of time, but it's long enough for things to go wrong. And when when he arrives back in Jerusalem, he discovers that the people have completely messed up all over again. They've gone back on their word. They've compromised every single commitment they made to the Lord in chapters 9 and 10. It's the same old story. They've turned away from God again. And Nehemiah flips out. He absolutely loses it. He is so angry. And this is what it says in chapter 13, verse 25. It says, Nehemiah saying, I rebuked them and called curses down upon them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. This is Nehemiah, the respectable model leader whose life we've been inspired by and learning about for the last six weeks. And here he is, absolutely losing it with his people. You know, when the authors write books like Becoming a Great Leader, Lessons from the Life of Nehemiah, they leave out chapter 13. (laughs) You don't include that in a book about great leadership. Can you imagine? This anger for Nehemiah comes from the crushing realization that this was not going to be the moment he had hoped it would be. Nehemiah was full of passion and love for God. He did everything he could to bring about the fulfillment of those prophecies and lead the Israelites into a new era of devotion to their God. He thought that returning to Israel and rebuilding the walls would work, but it didn't. And the story ends with Nehemiah angry and in tears and beating the Israelites for returning to their sinful ways and violating their commitments to God. So what's the lesson here? What's the purpose of this story? What are we to take from it? Essentially, what we learn from the story of Nehemiah is that Nehemiah's efforts to restore the city and reconcile the people didn't bring about a restoration that lasts. Israel's problem before the exile was a hard heart that resulted in rebellion against God, and Israel's problem after the exile was still exactly the same. The disaster of and redemption from their exile hadn't led to a transformation in the people's hearts. And what this tells us is that the new covenant promises of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 had yet to be fully realized. And even though the Israelites were back in their ancestral homeland, spiritually speaking, they were still in exile. Things hadn't changed. And what God's people truly needed wasn't just a new temple building or a new city wall. They needed new hearts that could truly respond to God's love and grace with grateful devotion. At the end of Nehemiah, we're left with this empty feeling, the realization that reconciliation would have to come some other way. And this is ultimately the purpose of Nehemiah, um, that Nehemiah serves in the overarching story of the Bible. It is a story that shows that The return of many Israelites to Jerusalem was only one step towards the fulfillment of the prophetic hope of the new covenant and the kingdom of God. It is the realization of that hope that that hope only came when God himself entered into Israel's story in the person of their Messiah and King. You know, through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus and through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the new age was finally at hand. And this is what Jesus is saying. When Jesus comes in the Gospels, he's like, the kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying, it comes with me. All of the stuff that was tried in the Old Testament failed. But when I step foot on this land, I am bringing the kingdom of God with me. That is why he is able to declare the kingdom of God is at hand. This, I believe, is the most important lesson we can take from Nehemiah. That true restoration, restoration that lasts, comes only through Jesus. Only through Jesus. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul sets out what he refers to as the ministry of reconciliation. He says this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. is that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, all can be reunited with their Father in heaven. All of us can. No one is too far from him, and he delights in restoring people back to him. It's the thing he loves most, bringing people back to him for that relationship he created us for. But it is only through Jesus that lives can be truly restored There is nothing that anyone can do in their own strength to achieve this for themselves. There is nothing that we can do in our strength to do this for other people. It is only through Jesus. But as Paul says in this passage, Jesus has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He has made a way for the people to have a right relationship with God. And therefore, we who have already been reconciled to him are to share the message of reconciliation with those around us. As we seek to restore this city, we are to share the wonderful news of what we know for ourselves to be true, that God takes delight in restoring and reconciling people to himself, and that he has made this possible through his son Jesus. In this, we are to be Christ's ambassadors. We are to be his messengers to a waiting world that does not yet know him. So in finishing... Throughout this series, we have reflected on being burdened for our city and allowing God to shape our burden into a vision for our city. We've looked at taking risks for the city and stepping out in faith to see that vision become a reality. We've considered what it means to survey and know the city, to understand its needs and partner with it. We've seen that though this may look different for each of us, each of us are called differently, that we are called to stand shoulder to shoulder with one another as we seek to restore this city together. And we've learned that inevitably, we will face opposition along the way. But if we draw near to God, we will be able to stand firm. And finally, may we remember that above all else, That restoring the city is ultimately about pointing people towards Jesus. That they may discover for themselves the joy of the Lord, the one who delights in restoring the broken and reconciling with the lost. This is what it looks like to bring restoration that lasts. This is what it means to restore the city. If you're able to, why don't you stand?